Hello, I'm Jacob Jarvis. It's Monday morning and that means it's time for another Start Your Week. But before you begin, I've got a podcast service announcement. We're running a listener survey to help us better understand what you want to hear from us. The link is in the show notes and if you fill it in, you're in with a chance of winning a Bunker t-shirt. How about multitasking and doing it as you listen? But back to the matter in hand, let's take a metaphorical leap into the unknown. Joining me to read the runes for the days ahead is commentator and regular Bunker Almanac, Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Morning. Morning, Jacob. Always lovely to be here. <laughs> lovely to have you. Over the weekend, former PM Gordon Brown said, Boris Johnson, Sunak and Trust must this week agree an emergency budget. If they do not, Parliament should be recalled to force them to do so. Is there any chance of that happening? I would say almost zero chance of that happening, I'm afraid. I mean, the problem here is slightly a constitutional one, slightly a political one. Basically, a caretaker uh, government by convention will not make any massive decisions that are seen to bind its successor. So for a huge uh, budget intervention to happen, really it would need the agreement of both candidates. Does that make sense? So that both of them consent to any big plan that will bind their hands when they're elected. The way in which the candidates will deal with the cost of living crisis has been the central difference between their campaigns. It is the point on which they're attacking each other and the point on which they're saying they have a completely different plan. So they're agreeing or consenting to some kind of emergency budget is, I think, incredibly unlikely. We'll come back to what the candidates are saying on that mm. uh, a little later on. But at the at the moment, does it look like the government has any plans on this at all? Or is it just another issue that's slipping just like everything else seems to be? Well, I think, I mean, it seems to me like the, the vast majority of the, the government have checked out. Not to mention that even practically, most of them seem to be on holiday. And, and, and this isn't just at the ministerial level, remember, but also staff. Remember, there are departments like the Treasury, for instance, which have been dealing with hmm. Brexit, the pandemic, the cost of living crisis in a, so, in a sort of all hands on deck continuous situation for years now. And this caretaker stage has provided a short window for civil servants to take a holiday. My contacts in the civil service report that most departments are on skeleton staff. Labor uh, are, are pushing today, actually, on responses to consultations. There are apparently 25 consultations to which government has not responded. So ministers have put out a consultation on XYZ, and after they've received input from various individuals, organizations, sectoral engagement, they haven't responded to those consultations. Two of them are seven years old. Fifteen mm. of them were started by this government. And so I think Whitehall is in a sort of quiet, exhausted meltdown at the moment. Is it in part because focus is going on the seemingly never-ending Operation Save Big Dog with Boris Johnson being urged to quit over the, uh, over the Partygate probe? Oh, Christ. I mean, you know, the, the Daily Mail's campaigning and the Daily Telegraph's campaigning for Boris Johnson just seems to never stop. 
the latest after you know the ridiculous plan to start some sort of petition for people to say that they want Johnson on the ballot paper that having petered off because actually the vast majority of both conservative members conservative voters and voters at large do not want Johnson to be in the ballot paper. They want to be shot of him. So now the situation has focused on uh, what they describe as a partisan and biased campaign mm. um, to uh, to take revenge on Boris Johnson by a committee that is majority conservative, it must mm. be said. Um, but they're saying those are the wrong sort of conservatives because they're the sort of conservatives that don't like Boris Johnson. And when I say they, I'm talking about Nadine Dorries and Zach Goldsmith. They're the two people on the whole that have been piping up. He's sort of two bezies in government. I mean, Zach Goldsmith sent out a tweet yesterday complaining that that uh, 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 the Committee on Standards is some sort of abuse of power uh, and shows extreme partisanship. Zach Goldsmith, this is the same <laughs> man who was actually thrown out by the voters of Richmond Park. They didn't elect him. And then Johnson made him baron of Richmond Park, <laughs> elevated him to the Lords so he could keep his ministerial position. And he's piping up about abuse of power to protect his mate. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's going to be a huge headache for whoever takes over, you know. They, they, they might end up with pretty much the first action being asked to grant a sort of pardon mm. to Johnson and so they will begin somehow by tainting their government with the sins of the last. Mm. Um, now, had this been a genuine fresh start, had it been, let's say, Tom Tugendhat or Jeremy Hunt, there might yeah. be a sort of amnesty, let's move forward argument. But with one of the candidates having also been fined and mm. the other refusing to condemn the PM for Partygate, they are already uncomfortably close to that scandal. Remember, their, their, their primary and urgent task is to lift the Tories in the polls by pretending this is an entirely new government that has nothing to do with the last one. Mm. And it's very, very hard to do that if your first couple of months are consumed by Partygate because there's some kind of argument going on about whether the committee charged with determining whether a member of parliament has lied to parliament is not allowed to judge whether a member of parliament has lied to parliament because apparently that's partisan. Other than this uh, sort of furore being kicked up by Boris Johnson sycophants, it would seem at the moment, what is the state of play with the Partygate probe? Is this you know, going to roll on for months at this moment? Well, look, the, the Partygate probe is largely finished. Um, there are some legal moves to review judicially the Metropolitan Police's decision to not even send questionnaires to Johnson over some events mm. in which he was clearly present because we have photos of them and other people have been fined. So there is a, a, a legal challenge to the Metropolitan Police's 
decision-making that may yield some more evidence, documents, who knows what. There is this Standards Committee investigation on whether he deliberately misled Parliament, which could mean a suspension for him, which could in turn mean a by-election in Uxbridge. Mm. Um, and any new person will not want a, a big by-election in the first couple of months in a constituency that they won with a 7,000 vote majority. You know, we've seen much bigger majorities overturned in the last few months. You know, there, there's a couple of things happening, but not much. I, I mean, if if I were you, I would be keeping a closer eye on the Lebedev stuff. I think that is the one that's got uh, the potential to run and run, um, because just before he resigned, uh, Boris Johnson admitted that he had met Alexander Lebedev, the father of Yevgeny Lebedev, whom he also elevated to the Lords. So he had met him very soon after the Scripple poisoning, while he was foreign secretary, at a party in Italy, after which he was reported by many eyewitnesses to be very much worse for wear. And so here he is meeting without any official presence a person that we know used to be a KGB agent mm. in the middle of an international diplomatic crisis with Russia. And there exist no notes of the meeting, nothing about what the they discussed. I think that has the potential to be quite explosive, actually. As you mentioned earlier, the economy has very much become a focal point of the leadership race. So Truss has said she'd want to help people through tax cuts and not handouts, but then allies like Penny Morden have suggested maybe she would make payouts to people. Mm, uh, mm. She's also suggested an emergency budget. Meanwhile, Sunak has pledged to spend billions to ease energy bill woes. What's the state of play with the race in general? I mean, on the economics of it, in many ways, both of them are making a, a, a sort of category error. Um, one is saying, we've got to lower taxes because that's what's going to stimulate the economy. The other one is saying, we've got to grip inflation because that's the thing that will steady the economy. Because of the nature of a leadership campaign is to look powerful and to pretend you will take charge. So both of them are concentrating on what they will do to change the course in the economy, when in fact, because there are so many external factors like the price of fuel, like the war in Ukraine, mm. they can do nothing about them. And then there are domestic factors like our dreadful relationship with the EU or immigration to address labor shortages on which politically they will do nothing about. So in many ways, it is all pretend because they cannot change the course of the economy right mm. now anymore that they could change the course of the pandemic two years ago. And so all they can do right now is provide emergency support. But that makes them look both powerless and unconservative, mm. which is a, a dreadful look to their membership. So neither is really committing to it. Both are pretending that they can somehow change the course of the economy, one towards stability, the other towards growth, 
when actually what they need to do is to effectively provide state help right now so that we get over what is seen by most people to be an externally imposed temporary bump. But like I said, that doesn't make make them look like they're in command of things. And so that's not a line they're going to commit to or push in any way. You mentioned them wanting to look powerful. Truss is using phrases like handouts. Is that because she wants to you know, channel channel Thatcher more so? She's using these Thatcherite terms. Oh, God. Well, everything she does is a cosplay of Thatcher. So, of course it is. <laughs> you know, that's the, I think that's the easiest question I've ever answered on the bunker. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is that the polling is moving towards Truss, even more so among the membership, who were all already favoring her, and also with conservative voters at large, and also with a with a wider public. It's not moving it's not moving to the extent that she would beat Starmer in a potential head to head, but they are moving in her favor. And and that's interesting because there was polling out today that shows most people think her policies are wrong. So Mm. most people think that emergency support should be prioritized over tax cuts. Mm. Um, So on the hottest issue at the moment, the majority of people think her her focus is wrong, and yet the very same people rate her more highly as a potential prime minister. Mm. And so this is more to do with character than to do with policy. So in the same polling, they found that trust is seen as more trustworthy. People see her as someone who they can believe what she says, and they see Sunak as less of that person. Mm. Whether issues of race play into that would be very, very interesting to see if there is underlying polling on that, because I suspect, actually, it is an unspoken element of of what we're seeing right now. I mean, no one wants to articulate it, but my sense is that when it comes especially to things like that, judgments of character, it does play a role, especially with conservative voters. So it's an interesting one. Basically, people are saying they think she's wrong, but also they think she's more genuine. Mm. And for that reason, they seem to be shifting support towards her. Um, and, and an interesting few months to come, I think, um, especially since it is my firm view we will see a very early general election being called. With Sunak already lagging behind somewhat, we saw an extraordinary video from the New Statesman of Sunak boasting of having diverted government money from deprived parts of the North to places like Tunbridge Wells. Will that mean anything for the contest? Yeah, it means nothing for the contest because A, Sunak is not going to win, and B, Sunak will be in another constituency today saying that he will divert money to them from Tum- Tunbridge Wells. So, On that, there are two more hustings this week. So is it, is it all just politicking at this point? Yes, I think, I think we have seen the general retail offering from both candidates. Unless some disaster strikes one campaign or the other, I suspect that their course is pretty much decided and that the result is pretty much set. 
further afield, the war in Ukraine rolls on. Russia's shelling of a nuclear power plant has sparked major concern and is a focal point of attention at the moment. Is there a real prospect of nuclear disaster in the coming days? There is, uh, and there has been from the start, I think, because if I remember correctly, this is the second time that a nuclear plant Mm. has been hit. I seem to remember that about two months into the conflict, there was very serious fire in a nuclear plant. And um, at that point, the the, um, head of the international authority that is in charge of such things had condemned Russia and said that we're basically uh, facing another Chernobyl. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a serious threat. It's always been a serious threat because Ukraine has working nuclear plants. Mm-hmm. So when there's fighting going on around them and when you have a situation where one adversary is as unscrupulous as Russia and the other adversary is as desperate as Ukraine, it creates the potential for big, big problems. What's the wider state of play in Russia's invasion? I mean, there is a lot of push and pull at the moment. Russia seemed to be doing relatively well in consolidating the gains they have made over uh, the, the Donbass and Lugansk territory. They seem to be pushing much less aggressively to the west, uh, along the coast, the agreement that Turkey and the UN brokered separately with Russia and Ukraine for grain ships to go through seems to be working okay, like the first couple have actually managed to go through. It's actually quite a dangerous situation for Ukraine in many ways, because we are reaching a level of a new equilibrium. And for a country that says, we won't stop until we regain our entire territory, reaching that kind of balance where um, there is not masses going on creates a a great risk that uh, countries around the world, uh, which are helping Ukraine at the moment, will begin to mule a little bit with winter coming, with energy pressures, and they will begin to say, why don't you settle for now so that we can take a breather? And that's a deeply unattractive argument for Ukraine, but an incredibly attractive one for the rest of the world. Ukraine instead is pushing for for sanctions on Russian nuclear power when you know you have an entire continent really struggling having made sanctions on oil and gas, uh, they're not going to extend those, I don't think. And so, like I said, it's a, it's a really tricky period for the Ukraine because what they don't want to do is they don't want to let the situation find a sort of comfortable equilibrium where everyone begins to say, come on, be reasonable, accept that you've lost this bit. After US House Speaker and Biden ally Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, China's been performing military drills by the territory. Alex, you've been looking at this for an upcoming Bunker Daily. What can we expect to see happen in regards to this conflict in the coming week? Hopefully, very, very little. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, you don't want this thing to escalate. And it seems to me that it is beginning to de-escalate in terms of military stuff. There have been some incursions. 
um, this morning. Um, but then again, China is always doing that. It seems to me that from, from reading what most military experts in the region had to say, that what we saw in the last week was a sort of threatening military drill that China had been planning for a long time and waiting for an excuse to implement. Mm. Because, because the majority opinion seems to be that they couldn't have mounted something so large and so coordinated at a moment's notice. And Pelosi's visit was really at a moment's notice. You know, she was in the region, and then there started to be some rumors that she might visit Taiwan, and then six hours later she was there, and then 12 hours later she was out. And so most experts think China could not have coordinated that magnitude of response in such a short time, and so they think it's something China was planning for a long time anyway, and found this as a convenient excuse to do it. Pelosi's decision to do that visit is actually a little bit of a mystery. It, like you said, she's such an, a close ally to Biden. I think that had the White House said, really, you can't do this, my sense is she wouldn't have done it. And so I wonder if there is an element there of the White House poking China a little bit, probing its limits, and they can simultaneously disavow it by saying, look, she's just a, a, a rogue Congress person. What can we do? Sticking with news linked to Biden, he had his Inflation Reduction Act passed in the Senate on Sunday. What impact will that have? I mean, a huge impact, uh, both practically and politically. Uh, I mean, this is not just something that provides more than $300 billion into climate change and clean energy schemes. This is also something that imposes a minimum tax on large corporations of 15%. So it's something that overrides state uh, taxation laws. It imposes a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks, which is an esoteric issue, but a really important one. It increases IRS enforcement. It extends Obamacare. It lowers prescription drug prices. You know, it's a wide ranging thing that just happened. I mean, the final passage didn't occur without <laughs> last minute drama. Senate Republicans sought to pursue an amendment at the very last minute, interestingly, to change the legislation, corporate minimum tax. I think that's a really telling thing, mm. that ultimately, of all the stuff in that act, Obamacare being extended, which they've been shouting about for years, prescription drug prices being lowered, green budgets being put out there, all they cared about was corporate tax levels. That was their their last desperate play about. And in the end, Kamala Harris, the vice president, had to intervene again. She has several times in this Senate because it's so evenly split. It's 51-50. Mm. And one of the Democrat senators often sits out the votes because he's in a very um, Republican region. Mm. And so again, she had to vote to break the tie. 
you know, it's, I mean, the, the whole thing is worth $740 billion with sort of private participation, which it tries to encourage, especially in the green um, side of things, and state participation, that rises to about a trillion. So mm. it's a serious, serious intervention. And it means that Biden can go to midterms having achieved a really big ticket item mm. out of his out of his um, promises. As they take action in the US to deal with climate change, it was only last month that Britain saw its hottest day on record. And now we are due another heat wave. There are drought concerns due to this. What issues should we look out for in the coming days? Well, we should all try to conserve water. Mm. I think that's important. I think we need to adjust the way we behave with water. I come from a really arid place. So I come from a small island called Mykonos that has very, very few natural resources when it comes to water. Mm. We've built a reservoir that tends to fill if there's good rain in the winter. But most summers, we actually have to import water by boat, mm. believe it or not. And so I come from a situation where, as kids, we often shared a bath. We all have to conserve water. You know, things are getting bad. The Rhine is reported to be at such low levels that it, it is threatening freight transport. Mm. Germany and other countries on, on the Rhine have been switching a lot of their freight off the road and onto the river because it's much more environmentally friendly. But if the river gets to a level where large ships cannot um, navigate it, then it's back onto the roads. It, I mean, it, it is a really, really serious issue. And I feel mm. one that has somehow snuck up on us because it, it was just at the stage where people were maybe enjoying a slightly hotter summer. People were maybe thinking, so if it gets a couple of degrees warmer, that, that won't be the worst thing possible. And now, you know, we're getting situations where we have a housing stock that's not built for high temperatures. We have, you know, a lack of provision of air conditioning in, in uh, uh, many older office buildings, which makes it very difficult for people to go to work. You know, all this stuff is costing the economy billions. And so even those who are non-believers in our duty to um, deliver the planet to the next generation in a better rather than worse state than we find it, even if that's not your bag, then look at the economic damage this is causing and will continue to cause and start to make the changes in your life. You know, there are big changes that government can make, but there are small changes that all of us can make. And we need to start making them. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to blame you, Alex, when I tell my housemates that we're going to be sharing baths over the next week. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't suggest that. Just to... <laughs> uh, well, I can quote you. I've got you on record here. <laughs> just to make it clear, I didn't suggest that. The only other thing, just before we wrap up, the only other thing that, that I would add is, you know, we saw the, the Egypt-negotiated ceasefire. Mm. 
between Israel and Palestine mm. um, hold up overnight, let's all keep our fingers crossed that it continues to do that. Absolutely. And that's Start Your Week. Thank you, Alex. You're very welcome. Listeners, don't forget to do that survey. The link is in the show notes and on our social media. And if you want to help us further, you can keep us going by backing us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll get early episodes without ads, merchandise, and much more. There's also a link in the show notes or search Bunker Patreon Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow for the weekly panel show. The Bunker Start Your Week was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreu. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofinievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.